everyone. I'm Sam. And I'm Sean. And this is Key to the Case. Welcome back. Thank you all for joining us today. And special thank you to our listener, Catherine, for sending today's case to us. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. It really helps us out, helps us grow. And thank you to those of you who have already done so. Let's get into today's case. Jeffrey Mitchell, who went by Jeff, was 38 years old at the time of his murder in 2006. Jeff grew up with three brothers and one sister in Campbell, California, located in the San Francisco Bay Area. Jeff was a gifted centerfield baseball player whose speed was unmatched. Jeff's success in baseball came from the sheer love of the sport. He was not driven by the hope of a scholarship, although he would have been a likely candidate. Jeff graduated from Westmont High School in 1986, and much to the surprise of his friends and family, he enlisted in the Air Force. He did a five-year stint in the Air Force, which included being stationed in Kuwait, as well as an assignment to the security forces. Days off were awarded to the sharpest person in uniform, and Jeff's meticulous nature meant that he often earned extra days off, but Jeff would typically transfer those days to someone else who he thought was more in need. This is a testament to Jeff's personality, and there are other stories similar to this that underscore Jeff's kind nature. After Jeff's military stint, he returned to California and enrolled in California State University, Sacramento. And Sacramento is located about a two and a half hour drive away from Campbell, where Jeff was from. So he was away from home, but definitely still within a comfortable driving distance. Jeff chose to major in education, and unlike his choice to join the military, this made sense to his friends and family. Jeff's personality was well-suited for teaching, and they always envisioned him becoming a teacher or a coach or something of that nature. While in college, Jeff met a woman named Crystal, and the pair began dating. Jeff earned his bachelor's degree in 1995, and he and Crystal got married later that year. After graduation, Jeff worked as a substitute teacher in the Sacramento area for a couple of years, and Crystal began working as an attorney. Jeff's experience with the sheriff's department began in 1997 when he landed a job as a recreation technician at a correctional center in Elk Grove, which is part of the Sacramento metro area. His role consisted of helping to lead the center's physical education system. Jeff saw his work with the inmates as important. He didn't want to feed into an often toxic guard-inmate relationship. Jeff carefully crafted programs for the inmates, and by all accounts, he was successful. So this is his full-time job? He's not a substitute teacher anymore? Right. And I I don't know the exact hours of this job, if it was a standard nine to five. I suppose he, if it weren't, he could have still been teaching or doing substitute teaching on the side. But yes, this was his full-time job. Jeff became a deputy with the Sacramento County Sheriff's Department three years later in 2000. And this was another surprising decision. Again, those closest to him imagined him following a different path, but Jeff would go on to love working in law enforcement. Around the same time that Jeff started that job, he and his wife, Crystal, had a baby boy. Unsurprisingly, Jeff was a loving and dedicated father. 
Crystal told the Sacramento Bee, quote, he was everything as a person you would hope a dad would be. He taught our son how to be a good person and a kind person, and he made sure there wasn't a day that went by that he didn't spend time with us, end quote. Jeff started in the patrol division and worked the graveyard shift in the South Bureau in South Sacramento County, which was reportedly notorious for being a hotspot for methamphetamine labs. The area he patrolled had wide open rural stretches that didn't bother Jeff. This area spanned across almost 500 square miles and was typically worked by fewer than five deputies at a time. Okay, so I'm doing some quick math on my phone. So 500 square miles would be about 22 and some change miles on each side if it was a perfect square. Yeah, that sounds about right. And for context, Sacramento County in its entirety is almost 1,000 square miles. So their patrol area was about half the size of the county. This beat, though, which most viewed as undesirable, was of special interest to Jeff because he liked community policing. And by working overnight, he was able to spend more time with his son and Crystal. And this brings us to 2006. The Mitchell family was living in El Dorado Hills, a community full of young families in the greater Sacramento area. Jeff was still working the graveyard shift as a deputy, and his son was six years old. So Jeff set out for his usual shift on October 26th. As Jeff backed out of his driveway, he shined his spotlight on his son's bedroom and used his PA system to tell him to go to bed. But by the early morning hours, everything will have gone dreadfully wrong. Jeff was patrolling a rural, unincorporated area called Slough House in the southern part of Sacramento County. And just before 3.30 a.m., Jeff notified dispatch electronically that he was pulling over a white Chevrolet van with a missing license plate, although he didn't specify if the front or rear license plate was missing. And in California, you are required to have both a front and back license plate. The stop was on Mace Road, east of where Mace Road intersects with Dillard Road. This intersection sits south of Jackson Highway, and it's an isolated, dark stretch of road. There are few reasons a person would be out driving on that road, at 3.30 a.m., and you would certainly think that if someone were driving out there at that time, that they were familiar with the area. Yeah, and they probably weren't expecting to get pulled over by a cop at 3.30 a.m. Right, and based on what we learn later, there's a good chance that the person driving this vehicle had good reason to not want to be pulled over. Jeff indicated that everything seemed okay and that there appeared to be one occupant in the vehicle. Seven minutes later, the dispatcher heard a click coming from Jeff's radio. It's unknown if Jeff clicked the radio to indicate distress or if it were set off in the midst of a struggle. The dispatcher attempted to reach Jeff by radio with no luck. She then tried calling his cell phone too, but got no response. The dispatcher knew at that point that something was wrong, and she signaled a code three to call all deputies. They needed to get to Jeff's location as soon as possible. Sorry, so what does the click indicate? He clicked his radio? Well, we don't know if he clicked it. 
to indicate distress to her or if it was accidentally set off. And that might make a little more sense once we get into what happened here. The first deputy arrived several minutes later. Sources vary on how many minutes later I saw. Some sources that said three minutes later, some sources that said 20 minutes later. So that's unclear. But they found Jeff lying on the ground, unresponsive near the back of his patrol vehicle with a gunshot wound to the head. Jeff's gun was out of its holster. However, it was not immediately clear if the gun had been fired. Shortly after, the scene was filled with law enforcement officers from the Sacramento County Sheriff's Department, and Jeff was life-flighted to University of California Davis Medical Center. Crystal received the news from several distraught officers, and her first response was to scream. Her worst nightmare had come to life. Everything was a blur for a while, but Crystal recalled their son asking if his dad was dead. He couldn't comprehend why the doctors couldn't simply put a bandage over his wound to fix it, which perfectly illustrates the mindset of a young child in a situation like this. Jeff was pronounced dead just before 5 a.m. Crystal couldn't even touch Jeff because all potential evidence needed to be preserved. Around 4,000 people attended Jeff's funeral. And I know so far, much of the focus has been on Jeff's law enforcement career, but he was so much more than that. He was a father, a husband, a friend, a son, a brother, and so on. Crystal's father read a heartbreaking letter she had written about Jeff's death on her behalf at the funeral and countless others shared stories that highlighted the kind of person Jeff was. The investigation began and police observed clear signs that a struggle took place. I think that's to be expected when a cop is killed, but this was a rather violent event. There was a significant amount of trauma on Jeff's body. The Sacramento County Sheriff at the time, John McGinnis, shared his belief with reporters that something heightened the situation between Jeff and the person he pulled over because it appeared that Jeff was in the process of handcuffing someone since his handcuffs were found not on his person at the scene. I'm assuming there wasn't any dash cam technology at, at this point, right? Not with this department. Yeah, they didn't have that. And we'll talk about that a little more later, but it's unfortunate because that could have been a useful resource in this case. Right, especially if the car was missing the front plate and the dash cam footage could have shown the the back plate. Right, right, right exactly. And we could have had a description of the person yeah, too. Yeah, that too. So... It's possible the suspect resisted arrest, a struggle ensued, and then the suspect took control of Jeff's weapon and then shot him intentionally or accidentally. We don't know. Investigators also noticed a fence by where the van was stopped had fresh damage. This suggested that the van may have had front-end damage. So now police had two starting points a person who possibly suffered visible injuries, specifically to the hands and face as a result of the struggle, and a white van with a missing license plate, impossible front-end damage. A number of agencies came together with the Sheriff's Department, including the FBI and California Highway Patrol, 
to begin a search for the killer, a search that ultimately ballooned to 465 square miles. Officers were on the lookout for white vans and stopped them as soon as they came upon one. It didn't take long because about 12 hours after Jeff's murder, a white Chevy van was found in the Kasumnas River close to the border of Amador and El Dorado County. The water was rather shallow where the van was found and only part of the tires were submerged. We're talking just inches of submersion here. The van was located about a 27-minute drive away from the crime scene and a theory formulated that if this is in fact the van in question, the killer likely drove straight from the crime scene to the river. I'm sure everyone's wondering along with me, did the van match the description of the van in question? Kind of. So as I said, it was a white Chevy van and the van appeared to have some minor front end damage. However, police later shared that they believed they knew the cause of the damage to the fence at the crime scene and that it was unrelated to Jeff's murder. So the damage is irrelevant. The van had a rear license plate and it had a front license plate, but that license plate was bent upward. We will share a picture of the van and how it was found in the water to our Instagram page, Key to the Case podcast. I think it really helps to have the visual. And if the front license plate was bent like that before the murder and Jeff drove past this van going in the opposite direction, then I can see how he would have thought the van was missing a plate. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask is, was Jeff mistaken with... uh, whether the van had a missing license plate or not. Exactly. That's definitely possible. And we don't know which direction he passed the van or if if he were behind the van, then it doesn't really make sense because it has a rear plate. Although it's possible that whoever put the van there added the rear plate after the fact, but that doesn't make sense either. If you had access to a rear plate in the first place, why would you add it on after? I mean, maybe... So when Jeff pulled this car over, I'm assuming he would have told the person why he was pulling them over. Yeah, I think so. That it was because of a missing plate. And if they didn't have that second plate on, but you know, for some reason it was in the van and then the then the whole struggle ensued, maybe when they fled the scene, they knew that the description of the van was already out there with a missing plate, so they could have put the plate back on and then ditched the van. Yes, I think that's the only reason that you would put the plate back on as a temporary way to not be as identifiable, right? Because there were alerts going out that we're looking for a white van with a missing plate. So that's the theory there. But the other one, I mean, since they likely disposed of the van rather quickly, it's very possible that Jeff just thought the front license plate was missing and the rear plate was there the whole time. I also noticed from the photos that there appeared to be a lot of random stuff in the van. And I suspect that what the police discovered inside the vehicle was far from what they had expected. Inside the van, investigators found two dead bodies, a man and a woman. Oh my God. Yeah. The man was found sitting in the driver's seat and the woman was in the passenger seat kind of slumped over. That is quite a turn of events I wasn't expecting. Yeah, neither was I. And the man was determined to be the van's registered owner, 
43-year-old Alan Schubert, and the woman was identified as his friend, 28-year-old Nicole Welch. It was not immediately clear how they died, and there was certainly not the kind of trauma to their bodies that the police would have expected if one of them killed Jeff. According to October 2006 reporting from the Sacramento Bee, Alan's body had some trauma, but it could have been from physiological changes that occur after death. While police waited for autopsy results, they learned more about Alan and Nicole. The information about them is scant, but I will share what we do know. Alan, who picked up work as a handyman or a mechanic where he could, sometimes lived out of his van and hadn't held a valid driver's license in about 10 years. All the stuff in Alan's van made sense when I learned that sometimes he lived out of his van. He probably had a lot of his belongings in there. But it could also mean that Jeff wasn't able to see inside the van very well if this is, in fact, the van he pulled over. At the time of Alan's death, he had a girlfriend he'd been with for about 10 years whom he had plans to move in with. Alan had a criminal history with a number of charges for vandalism, drug possession, and driving under the influence. Alan's family has pointed out that although he had these various criminal charges, he didn't have a history of violent crime. And since he had been pulled over so many times, he had dealt with law enforcement so many times, his family didn't think he would resist or fight back. Alan would typically just accept the consequences. So, With this information, there would have to be a pretty major shift in Alan's typical behavior for him to be capable of what happened to Jeff. Those closest to Alan described him as quiet and trustworthy. Alan also had a history of methamphetamine addiction, but it's unclear if he was using at the time of his death. Unfortunately, there's even less information out there about Nicole. Reportedly, Nicole resided in North Highlands, a Sacramento suburb. I know the focus of this case is the murder of Jeff Mitchell, but there are two other people here who died. And regardless of any history they had, they still had families who loved them and were deeply impacted by the loss. And even if they didn't, they're still people. I don't want that to be brushed over in this case, but at the same time, there simply is not nearly the same amount of information available about Alan and Nicole as there is Jeff. Reportedly, Alan picked up Nicole and they left the North Highlands area the night of October 26th. Jeff was murdered in the early morning hours of October 27th. Sources say that Alan was taking Nicole to visit friends in Jackson, California, which is about an hour away from North Highlands and 45 minutes away from where Jeff was murdered. So based on the route of Alan and Nicole's plans, was the van that was found kind of in the general vicinity of of that route or was it way out of the way? I would say so, yes. It's not like it was in the opposite direction. So from North Highlands to Jackson, it's kind of on the way. You're going at least in the right direction. And even more interesting, they sources say that they intended to go camping at a campground near where the van was ultimately found. So did they go to Jackson the night of the 26th and something happened to them there and they ended up kind of back near the campground 
Or did they go to the campground first and they never actually made it to Jackson? There are several possibilities, yet little is known about their movements after they were last confirmed to be seen. And Alan's family has said he wouldn't have stayed away long because he reportedly had an upcoming court appearance that he wouldn't miss. The autopsy results for Alan and Nicole finally returned and revealed that they both died of carbon monoxide poisoning. An initial theory was that if Alan drove the van through the river, he and Nicole could have died of carbon monoxide poisoning if the tailpipe got blocked with water. However, the water didn't appear deep enough to fully submerge the tailpipe, and it was shallow enough for the pair to escape the van. So why would they just stay in the van? Were there any traces of drugs in their system? Because I'm kind of thinking maybe they became incapacitated and they drove into the river on accident and plugged the, plugged the tailpipe. And that's how they got carbon monoxide poisoning? So I don't know the answer to that. Unfortunately, I couldn't find any information about what was in their system. All we know is that they died from carbon monoxide poisoning. I get where you're going with that. If We don't know, but if they were using drugs, there is a possibility that that could be at play here in a few different ways. Also, I was thinking Alan had experience as a mechanic. So if he were fully conscious and, you know, something's going wrong with the car. I don't think he would just sit in the river and and wait for something to happen. Ultimately, investigators do not believe Alan and Nicole were responsible for Jeff's murder. They didn't have the kind of trauma to their bodies that one would expect given the struggle that likely ensued. Therefore, they have been ruled out as suspects. A theory emerged from police that Alan and Nicole were already dead when Jeff pulled over the white van. This creates an obvious reason why the driver wanted to get away. It's possible that the offender was on his way to dispose of the bodies. Detective Ken Clark said, quote, There's no doubt in my mind the vehicle found in the Consumnes River is the vehicle that Jeff stopped the night he was killed. End quote. Despite this comment and other comments from law enforcement similar to this, I couldn't find clear evidence that tied the white van found in the river to the white van Jeff reportedly pulled over, although it would be an unlikely coincidence if they aren't linked. But I couldn't find any sighting of physical evidence that could tie the crime scene of Jeff's murder to the van in the river. Residents of Slough House and the community nearest where the murder occurred, Wilton, were frightened by the news. Their normally quiet and peaceful community was rocked by this act of violence. People were angry and worried that the offender could be right under their nose. One resident named Sheila told the Sacramento Bee in November 2006 that she wondered how an outsider would have been aware of the remote road where Jeff was killed. Teens were known to party along the shoulder of Mace Road at times, but she believed the killer was someone familiar with the area. Thousands of tips came in over time and had to be sorted through. I read about quite a few various tips that led to nothing and were ruled out as being related to Jeff's murder. We could walk through them, but that feels like extraneous information. The investigation continued, and it was confirmed that Jeff was killed with his own firearm. There were no other weapons involved. Fortunately, a partial DNA profile was collected from the scene, as well as a strong set of fingerprints that were left behind 
on a key item at the crime scene. Do we know what the key item was? I'm assuming we do. No. Unfortunately, they've never stated what that item is. But to me, it seems probable that it was the gun. Since that is one item at the crime scene, we know the killer had to have touched. Or possibly even Jeff's uniform. And it's interesting to me that the killer left the gun behind. You would think maybe they would take it with them since they know they touched it. So I just thought that was kind of an interesting choice. Yeah, they probably know that the description of the van has been reported out there. So, you know, they they may be thinking that they're going to get probably get pulled over again. So if they had the gun on them, maybe that'd be pretty damning evidence, obviously, of what they left behind. Yeah, it would be a direct link to the murder. So now not only do you have potentially two dead people in your van, but you also have a gun that was just used to kill a police officer. So that makes sense. And it also could have been a panic decision, you know, not thinking things through in that moment. Another reason police don't believe Alan or Nicole killed Jeff is that their fingerprints did not match those from the key item at the scene. I mean, couldn't they also determine when Alan and Nicole died? That's another question I had. Yeah, Yeah, I, I don't know an estimated time of death, but it had to be... I mean, it's a pretty short time frame we're talking about here. If they were last seen the night before... And Jeff is killed at 3.30 a.m. If they were in the van, then we're only talking about a period of, what, six hours here in which they died of carbon monoxide poisoning? I mean, it seems like a pretty tight time frame. Interestingly, though, the prints were compared with prints stored in national crime databases to no avail. Sacramento County Sheriff John McGinnis told the Sacramento Bee in 2007, quote, This suggests a high probability that the donor of the prince is not somebody in the criminal justice system, and that in itself is significant, end quote. He went on to say that, quote, we have consistently gotten tips that the killer is from another country. That is consistent with the lack of a fingerprint match. We have to take seriously the possibility that he's hiding across the border, end quote. At the time of Jeff's murder, the partial DNA profile was not complete enough to be uploaded into CODIS. This has not been an easy case for investigators. For one, there were no witnesses, and the evidence was minimal overall. Yet this is certainly not the type of case with no suspects or persons of interest. Over time, investigators have sorted through many persons of interest some of which have been ruled out and others who have not. Police have indicated that it's likely that more people know what occurred the night of Jeff's murder than the person or people responsible. In 2011, lead detective Tony Turnbull told CBS 13 that they thought they had a pretty good idea who was responsible. He said that he strongly believes more than one person was involved and that they have been caught in lies. He expanded on the theory of the case and added that he believes the killer was attempting to get to a campground, the same one I mentioned Alan and Nicole possibly camping at, when he or they either got stuck in the river or chose to leave the van there. This seems like promising information. However, no arrests have been made, which raises the question, if they had the right person or people 
Couldn't they have matched the fingerprints that were left behind to at least one of their persons of interest? It's possible that if a person of interest didn't willingly submit fingerprints or they hadn't been arrested before, they didn't have quite enough probable cause for a judge to grant a warrant for law enforcement to get the fingerprints despite a suspect's refusal. Deputies even visited one person of interest home on four separate occasions, and when they felt they were close to making an arrest, there was a lack of evidence each time. I want to go back to the van and how it was found in the river and how Alan and Nicole died of carbon monoxide poisoning because this kind of put my brain in a pretzel. I desperately want to understand the circumstances in which they died. Yeah, if they died prior to the van being in the water and someone else was driving, then that person would have had to move their bodies back up into the front seats, right? How, yes. Yeah. yeah. I had that thought too. How much How much did they weigh? I'm not sure about Nicole, but Alan weighed about 200 pounds. So okay. that so, seems like a lot of effort, don't you think? Yeah, definitely. And For it, one person, yeah. Yes. I, it would definitely be easier with two people. And that makes more sense to me. The whole theory of two people being involved makes a little more sense to me. Two people, I guess, who aren't Alan and Nicole... That could also explain how, you know, two against one in the situation with Jeff could be easier for them to go after him. I suppose I'm wondering now, like if the person drove the car into the van or people, were they just supposed to set off on... Into the river, you mean? Yeah, what'd I say? Into the van. (laughs) Oh, yeah, sorry. Into the river. Were they just supposed to set off on foot? Like, were they near anything? They were near that campground. Okay. Yeah. So How, that's that theory makes more sense. Okay. How far away from the campground? I don't know exactly. Okay. But it sounded like it wasn't far. It was definitely okay. like they could have gotten out of the van, walked through the river. Again, this was shallow enough for them to walk to the property on the other side. It sounded like they could do that pretty quickly. But then did they get stuck? That's what I don't know. Like, did they get stuck in the water and they couldn't drive any further? Or was this an intentional act? They chose to leave them there. And I also wonder if the thought was, well, I need to go get a different vehicle. Like, the reason they may have been going back to the campground, if they were, was to get a different vehicle, possibly, to put their bodies in and then dispose of them. But then maybe that plan was derailed. I don't know. It's just hard. And I go back to, I I know police don't think Alan and Nicole were behind this, but it is strange to me. This whole scenario is like, we're talking about all these scenarios, but we don't have definitive proof that we know of that this is the van. So there is still this other scenario out there where Alan and Nicole were driving through this river for whatever reason, and they got stuck and died. Neither scenario really makes a ton of sense to me, but I suppose the former that someone else was driving makes a little more sense. And to your point, if the driver or two people in the car moved Alan and Nicole to the front seat, I assume they were wanting to make it look like Alan was driving and Nicole was in the passenger seat and something happened there so that police would think they were potentially responsible for Jeff's murder. So was the area that the van was found in, 
was it pretty well covered by trees and brush or was it kind of out in the open? Yes. There's a lot from the pictures I saw, there's a lot of trees and, and brush in that area. Okay. So maybe the person who killed Jeff, who was driving the van, maybe they thought that it was legitimately going to be well covered and not found very easily. Even though it sounds like it was found pretty easily, right? I know. It was found within 12 hours. But I see your point. I do think it's possible that they didn't think it would be found as quickly as it was. I was even surprised it was found that quickly based on that location. Police believe the deaths of Alan and Nicole were an accident. And I agree, considering carbon monoxide poisoning would be an unusual way to murder someone. But could someone have felt responsible for this accident in some way? I can't see why if Alan and Nicole somehow accidentally died from carbon monoxide poisoning in Alan's van that someone else would feel responsible. Unless they died from the van's exhaust on someone else's property and that person had reason to not call law enforcement to their property. Or maybe the person didn't know how they died. We know Alan had a history of methamphetamine addiction. So if someone in this theory supplied them with drugs and then thought they overdosed, even though they didn't, that could explain why they felt responsible. But that's just a theory. Also, if the van had a faulty exhaust system, I would think that could be determined by examining the vehicle. That's not to say it had to be faulty for this to occur. I suppose they could have been in an enclosed garage or something along those lines. Right. But assuming the van had a catalytic converter, that would make the likelihood of a carbon monoxide poisoning go way down because that's, that's their whole purpose is to reduce the amount of emissions. Right. And it should have had a catalytic converter. I don't see why it wouldn't. And that seems like something, if it were faulty, it seems like something someone could diagnose, don't you think? Right. If it even had one at all, it could have been stolen. Yes. I will say where we used to live, people would get their catalytic converters stolen left and right. And I don't know the prominence of that in 2006, so it's hard to say, but it's a possibility. Yeah, and I know cars that are lifted up a little bit higher, like a van, are more readily and easily targeted. Yeah, so that's an interesting possibility that would make the carbon monoxide poisoning make more sense. But it seems like that would be something police would share with the public. If the car was missing its catalytic converter, it seems like they would put that out there to explain to people why the carbon monoxide poisoning occurred in the first place. And nothing like that came out. So the details are pretty vague about their deaths overall. Although I'm not too sure how effective it is if the exhaust was just completely plugged up. The catalytic converter, you mean? Yeah, just, well, the exhaust pipe. You're saying how effective the catalytic converter would be if the exhaust pipe were plugged up. Right. Yeah, that's another good point. If it were covered or plugged for any reason, then yeah, I think a carbon monoxide poisoning would be more likely. I just have so many unanswered questions about this part of the case. And a small part of me wonders if this van and Alan and Nicole are even related to Jeff's murder, but it just seems too strange of a coincidence 
not to be related. And police maintain their theory that it is connected. And I'm putting these questions out there because I know if I were listening to our podcast, I would be asking these questions in my head. If the person who killed Jeff truly was the driver of the van that ended up in the river, then this has to somehow be connected to Alan and Nicole. This person has to have a connection to them, even if it's in a small way. After Jeff's murder, a broader discussion of officer safety was sparked. Specifically, as you mentioned before, Sean, the topic of dash cams came up. Budget constraints made in-car cameras a luxury for many departments at that time, but Sacramento County had already been looking into the technology for several years prior to Jeff's murder. They were simply waiting for the right time from a budget and technology perspective. Fortunately, after Jeff's murder, audio and video equipment was approved in the Sacramento County Sheriff's Department budget that would equip the entire 400-car fleet. Additionally, questions were raised around single officer patrol in such rural areas. But again, the conversation resorted back to resources. Officers in urban areas were more likely to have two officers per car, whereas in Jeff's patrol area, there were four solo units out in a nearly 500-square-mile area. So if you double up, then you can only have two vehicles out. FBI crime statistics for 2006 show that on a national level, 63% of the officers who were assaulted were assigned to one-officer vehicle patrols. Also, in 2005, one in every five officers assaulted was on duty in a rural area, which seems disproportionate given the lower number of officers who patrol rural areas. A criminal might feel emboldened in a desolate area, whereas in an urban space, they would know backup officers would arrive much more quickly. Yeah, and they probably see it, see it as a crime of opportunity as well, right? Since it's in such a rural area. Right. They wouldn't be as fearful of being caught. Right. All of this to say that each night when Jeff set out, the risk of something like an assault or murder was elevated. In 2013, physical evidence from the crime scene was resubmitted for testing. The hope was that with recent advances, new insights could be gleaned, but that was not the case. In 2020, Detective Turnbull told ABC10, quote, After 14 years, we've made a lot of strides. To say there are no suspects or persons of interest would be lying to you. We looked at people strongly, and they have not been ruled out yet, end quote. I wonder what they were basing the, because uh, it sounds like they're obviously looking at some people. So I'm, I'm just kind of wondering how they found who to look at, right? Right. I'm wondering the same thing, but I think at least one of these people was connected to that campground or that property that was near where the van was found. As for everyone else they looked at, it could have been tips from people. Could have also been connected to Alan and Nicole. Yes, right? that's a good point. People who are in both of their circles. Once you start looking at those people, finding out where they were that night, um, if they are criminals, what kind of background they have, then you could start limiting your pool there. The question I go back to is, if there are viable suspects and there are fingerprints from the crime scene to compare to, it could just be a matter of time. And, and how is this case not solved? I mean, investors have said that if they found the right suspect, 
they had confidence that they had just enough evidence to make an arrest, yet that hasn't happened. Crystal has little faith that the person or people responsible will come forward of their own volition, but there may be people out there with information who are connected to the people responsible in some way that could finally come forward if they chose to stop protecting those responsible. Something that I just thought of, do you know if the police canvass the people in the campground or the campers? Because, I mean, that was that was the only near, you know, location near the river that they could legitimately walk to and maybe stay for the night or something. Yeah. So I, I would think they would want to question the other campers. Although I, I realized that it, it was, what, 3.30 in the morning, 4 in the morning by the time the van may, may have gotten there, something like that. So right. no one may have been awake, but someone may have, I don't know, just hanging around the campfire or something. So I'm wondering if they asked other campers, hey, did you see someone or people walk up with wet shoes and pants? I feel like I keep saying I don't know to your questions in this episode, but I don't know. But I mean, with the focus the police have had on that campground, I would assume the answer is yes. I mean, it would be irresponsible for the answer to not be yes (laughs) from the police, from the perspective of the police. Surely they tried at least to question anyone who could have been staying there. And I don't even know that it was a populated area or, or campground, but I know they they were very interested in it. Jeff's memory lives on in a number of ways. Just to name a few, there is a memorial at the location of his murder. The Little League Stadium, where he coached his son's team, was named after him. And Crystal participates in the police unity tour each year in Washington, D.C. as a way to honor his memory. Their son, who is now in his 20s, is thriving, and although he and Crystal have learned to endure the loss, they still want justice for Jeff. If you have information related to the murder of Deputy Jeff Mitchell, you can submit an anonymous tip at tips.fbi.gov, or you can call the Sacramento County Sheriff's Office Cold Case Homicide Unit at 916-874-5057. It bothers me that we have the unexplained deaths of Alan and Nicole, yet those don't really seem to be a focus from an investigative standpoint. It's very possible that they died accidentally, but if someone were attempting to dispose of their bodies, that's still a crime. I suppose the police might be thinking if they focus on Jeff and finding his killer, it will provide answers in the deaths of Alan and Nicole as well. Thank you all for joining us. And thanks again to our listener, Catherine, for sharing today's case with us. I'd never heard of this one before, so it was definitely had a lot of shocking aspects to it. If you'd like to request a case, you can email us at keytothecase at gmail.com or you can reach us on Instagram at keytothecasepodcast. We'd also love to hear your thoughts about this case, as well as all the other cases we've covered. We always like to hear from you. That's all for now, but we'll be back next week with a new case. Bye. Bye.